agriculture, typically it'll yield higher on a rate of return. And it's a very stable asset class. As long as you insure and get derivatives against any weather risk, the yield is very stable. You see a lot of money flowing into it. And it's very difficult asset class to get into, especially in developed market. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Hi, great to wealth listeners. If you own and manage real estate, maybe you're ready for a lifestyle change. By selling your real estate, of course, you may have to pay substantial capital gain taxes. One option that may help you solve this is to learn about doing a 1031 tax deferred real estate exchange because you may be able to defer all of the capital gain taxes and you could even exchange into a replacement property that may allow you to get rid of all of the headaches that are involved with being an active landlord. My friend Ray Druitt is a managing director with Bangerter Financial Services and his goal is to help you understand all of the rules associated with 1031 exchanges. To learn more, you may call him directly at 801-312-9482. Once again, it's 801 801- 312-9482, or you may visit his website at 1031.bangertofinancial.com slash 1031guy. Please be sure to see disclosures in the show notes. Welcome back, my great wealth listeners. Today, we have somebody who actually manages an interesting asset, coffee, my weakness. And he does a little bit more than just a coffee grower. He is the founding partner of the alternate asset management company, Legacy Group. And also, he's the founder and the board member at the Green Coffee Company, Colombia's largest coffee producer. And as we talk, you'll actually get to know a little bit more about his background. Someone who has done everything right in his life, PwC, M&A, consulting, Bermuda, Hong Kong, Beijing. A lot of people would kill to have his career. So we're going to go deeper into why he gave it all up and then started growing coffee. Of all things, I'm glad he's growing it because someone's got to grow it if I need to drink it. Cole, welcome on the show, buddy. How are you? Very good. Thanks for having me, Saket. Very nice to be here. Of course. No, thank you. So, Cole, before we actually get deeper into, I'm sure I butchered your intro. We'll fix it along the way. Before we go in there, help me understand what does the term migrate to wealth mean to you? Sure. So, I've traveled around, I would say, the world, my career since I was 25. So I turn 40 in a month. I've been doing this for 15 years. And I would say that probably brought me to the next level in my career is moving to new places, learning yeah. new things, learning cultures, learning business. You know, I started with my first move to Bermuda in 15 years ago, moved to Hong Kong after that, moved to Beijing after that, moved to Colombia, Medellin here where I am now. And I do think there's opportunities outside of your home country. I will always go to where I think the action is. And I think yeah. it's important, whether you're building companies or building career, to go where the action is. Why made it in Colombia? So at the time, I was working in M&A with PricewaterhouseCoopers in Hong Kong. I was 31 years old. You need to start making a partner case at that yeah. stage. Maybe you're four or five years out. But you need to say, is, is this just a job or is this something you want to do forever? I liked working in developing markets. I liked Southeast Asia. And the key focus area is that we needed people that knew M&A for financial services, which was my background, was with Southeast Asia and Latin America. We didn't have heavy presences in those regions. I came down to Colombia when I was starting to talk with partners in Bogota and in Sao Paulo in Brazil. 
And when I came down to Columbia for my brother's wedding in Cartagena, I started doing some kind of soft diligence, looking at markets in Medellin, looking at markets in Bogota, which is the capital here in Colombia. And I said, this is an interesting spot, right? I think the markets, especially financial markets, aren't really aligned. Economic growth is more than what I would expect to see with like yeah. penetrations that I saw in the market. I was aggressive. I wanted to do entrepreneurial work, whether it was working as a partner within a firm and growing a practice or starting my own businesses. And I decided at the time and said, I wasn't married, didn't have kids at the time. Let's take a bet. Let's take a risk. Let's put all my money into running my own businesses. The worst thing that happens is I'm going to learn fluent Spanish and I'm going to have a lot of knowledge to come back to the consulting and M&A world with. Mm -hmm. True. Why coffee? So it's an interesting career. You're working with companies that we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more, of transactions. Sure. And you see interesting problems. So is there something within Absolutely. your transaction, a specific transaction that happened that triggered you towards coffee? I'm actually interested in how people get into the coffee business. Sure. So actually, the initial thesis when I came down to start businesses was I saw too much capital in Asia. I mean, mm -hmm. Hong Kong is an epicenter for capitalism. I mean, you'll see guys buying, for any of the real estate investors listening to this, you'll see guys buying one caps at the time, 1% yields on real yeah. estate in Hong Kong. So you say, this is an excess capital market, right? When I was talking about going down to either Colombia or Brazil, most of my peers that did M&A and banking, insurance, asset management, they wouldn't be able to point out either country on a map because it doesn't even register. So I think everything becomes a building block on one another. The original thesis was there's not enough trade flow between Latin America and Asia, and there's not enough, especially capital flows going that way. There's too much capital in some of these developed market epicenters, whether it's New York, London, Hong Kong, and it's not going to frontier markets. And I saw that doing M&A in Hong Kong when we do deals in Malaysia or Thailand or some deals in the Middle East, you'll see inefficient trade flows. And so when I originally came down to Columbia, I really started with real estate, mostly distressed, buying bankruptcy mm -hmm. sale, going to what's called a juzgado here, which is like a courthouse auction in Colombia. Very inefficient, very much you need to learn Spanish quick, <laughs> learn legal systems quick, right. and built a little team around that. And then eventually got into fresh cut flowers. I had peers that were working in commodity, and my focus was on Asian markets, to fill that thesis of saying a lot of the trade flows with developed markets are very efficient. This was while sure. you were working at PwC or at that time you decided no. that you want to quit? I had left PwC. So I wanted to make, you know, at the time when I was going to stay with PwC, I really wanted to like, for me, my pitch for the partner I work for was you pay me zero and then I'll take a percentage of whatever revenues I can build. If you're 31 years old at a very large firm, even if you're top ranked, they're not going to take that. That yeah. I was talking with my partner and say, like, for instance, the Miramar open office was opening. And that is an aggressive frontier market. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, if I said to the partner, if you, Chris, if you want to give me a chance and you put me in Miramar, I'll work for free. I'll pay for everything to keep me alive, but just pay me a percentage of revenue I can build. That kind of aggressiveness doesn't bode well in a, PwC is ultimately an accounting firm. <laughs> you know, it's an accounting yeah. firm. And so that's like an entrepreneurial willing to lose everything. So me going down to Columbia, 
I go in with the full knowledge that I'm going to liquidate my IRAs, all my 401ks. And if I lose it all, I'm willing to trade it for the experience and the knowledge I'm going to get. And if I lose money, I think I can build that up a lot quicker than I can build up life experience. Well, well, let's talk about that specific thing before we go deeper, and then we'll come back to the timeline. Sure. What gave you that confidence? Was it something triggered? Something happened in life? Because I think that's a lot of people think about it, that I'm willing to give it all up. When the time comes, they're like, no, might as well stay with PwC. Give me the background context. Yeah. Yeah, I would say I always viewed PwC almost like a PhD. You know, even when I got out of graduate school and I started with them in Raleigh, Mm -hmm. North Carolina, you know, I started in biotech. Wait, you were in Raleigh, North Carolina? Absolutely. That's where I went to school. That's where I am right now, man. I'm in Apex, North Carolina. Beautiful place. I grew up in Apex. 2728 Southwinds Road is where I grew up in Apex, North Carolina, since I was 10 years old. That's awesome. A Absolutely. beautiful placement. I love Right off the US one. What a small world. You're literally in my hometown. <laughs> I lived there for 15 years, basically. Awesome, man. Awesome. But anyway, I would say when I was going through school, you know, what I liked, I liked honestly working more than I liked going to school. I bartended, worked in restaurants when I was in school. I made more money bartending than I made my first year at PwC. I'll tell you that. And working in PwC, you get to work with very, very intelligent people. They teach you things that you would never learn on your own. Mm -hmm. And about two years in, I would say I started getting into auditing basically venture capital firms in our research triangle park. Right. And I love the financial services aspect. And I was like, well, I really want to do financial services. Raleigh really isn't known for financial services. Really, the place to go was New York, right? And I had friends I graduated college with that were working in the New York office. But, you know, I was born in upstate New York. I've been to the city lots of times. I was like, "Mm, let's do something a little more aggressive. And I started looking at what they needed internationally. And there was two Mm -hmm. locations I was massively interested in because I wanted to learn about hedge funds. It was Bermuda and it was Cayman Islands. So I interviewed with both. And one of the funny things about PwC is they have a difficult time recruiting any talent, especially people who are 25, 26 years old, to go move to Bermuda or the Cayman Islands because Mm. no one's from there. And most accountants are going to be very risk averse, right? They're like, I don't have family there. I don't know. I mean, it's English language. That's pretty easy. But they have a difficult time recruiting. So they pay premiums. Obviously, there's no income tax there. So you get paid significant premium what you'd make on the United States. And I think that's what really took me over the edge. I was always wanting to learn as much as I can. I didn't care as much about making as much money as possible as a PwC, Mm because in the end, if you're making 20% different on a salary, in the end, it's it's really immaterial. I wanted to learn as much as I could, as fast as I could, and work as many hours as I humanly could so that I could you? take that, something that, away from that it. time called 25? I was 25 when I moved to Bermuda. Awesome, man. That's right. So I stayed there two years, got an offer to stay. I actually got offered probably 25% more money to stay in Bermuda and continue there. But I talked with the partner in Hong Kong who became one of my favorite partners I ever worked for at the firm named Chris Chan. And he offered me a role in the M&A team, giving up promotion status, basically, to go work in Hong Kong because I wanted to learn how M&A worked, right? And I was willing to go anywhere, literally. I mean, if you would have said, look, you get to go to Somalia at that time when I'm 28, 
I probably would have taken you up on it if I yeah. had someone very intelligent teaching me how to do M&A and how it works in the real world with big boy companies. And so I think that desire to get to the next stage from a knowledge basis and learn things that I could never learn by reading a book or learning it mm -hmm. on my own got me the propensity to say, well, let's keep going out, building out the comfort zone. So I'll basically go anywhere and do anything to get to the next level to learn what I want to learn. So what was your fascination with financial services? How did that develop? That developed growing up or that developed once you got to college? I think it developed growing up. We didn't grow up a wealthy family, Apex, North Carolina. For any of the viewers on the call, when I grew up in Apex, North Carolina, from the time I was 10, it can be low middle class yeah. neighborhoods yeah. outside of the suburbs of Raleigh, right? The big city would be Raleigh, which Raleigh at the time was not the best city in the world. I mean, downtown Raleigh was right. is a good place to get stabbed at the time. Now it's completely different, Cole. You got to come up visit. It's completely changed. My parents live downtown Raleigh now. They live right off beautiful Moore now. Square. It is beautiful. Raleigh's right. beautiful. But when I was going to college, you didn't really go to downtown Raleigh unless you want to get in a fight. <laughs> <laughs> but I think growing up, you know, I was always interested in kind of business, capitalism. My dad worked as in a corporate called Martin Marietta, and I got to go to work with him on the weekends. And I think that's a good point. I think that most kids might not have had growing up is every weekend, my dad worked on Saturdays and Sundays in the office at Martin Marietta. He'd take me to work with him on mm. Saturdays and Sundays. What was he doing there? He called? was, he finished as probably the executive VP, which is like the second or third in the yeah. corporate. So you got, you got a bird's eye view to everything that was happening. Of course. But when I was a kid, he was a junior accountant, right? So when he mm. started in Apex, North Carolina, he started as the lowest level accountant you can right. get. And he finished 30 years later, awesome. right below CEO of a public company. So when I would go to work with him on Saturday and Sundays, I would learn to play with printers or whatever, but I would sit there and talk to the accounting controller, or I'd talk to the CFO, or you talk to the CEO, mm -hmm. right? Because they're the only ones there on Saturdays on and weekend. Sundays. Yeah. And when you're doing that when you're 12 years old, I think that is an advantage compared to someone coming out of college and saying, I don't really know how to interact with someone who is... Right very intellectually strong, maybe has more wealth than you. Even though I'm a kid, I don't have any money, I'm not really that intelligent. I got used to talking with sophisticated people when yeah. I was very young. Yeah. It could get intimidating, right? Because you put those people on a pedestal, they don't need to be. Oh, you absolutely. Do. And that intimidation causes you to think about what are you going to do? And the conversation is not natural. And if it's not natural, the relationship is not going to be natural either. I'm actually glad. And yeah, thank you for sharing that call. What I really want to tell half people focus on this is if I could distill in what you're basically saying is that your sure. life experiences, good, bad, ugly, are going to shape you. And they're going to be the boost or the killer, one of the other ones, right? So in your yes. case, you could yes. have easily said that I hated my dad working Saturdays and Sundays. He didn't have, he didn't, mm -hmm. I wanted to play with him, but he didn't play with me and all that stuff. You could have gone that direction. Sure. That's probably a podcast, another podcast, which basically talks about <laughs> what shapes us, right? Is it the environment? Is it the upbringing? Yes. Is it the culture? What really, or are we born a certain way? I think that's a different, completely different podcast, not this one, but it'll be sure. an interesting conversation. Sure. But in your case, you took that as a fuel, right? You took that Definitely. as, I did that for 30 years. Let me try my hands on, but I also want to be like the guy that my dad worked for, the CEO, the CFO, mm -hmm. the CXOs, 
where I could actually shape the future of the company. And I think that's probably what was the burning desire was always there. You just thought that PwC was a college that you need to attend to get your PhD. Once you thought you had the doctorate and the good thing is you don't have to present your thesis there. You just felt like it was done and you could move out. It's an amazing journey, Cole. I'm glad you took that. Thank you, sir. So now talk about coffee, man. You saw the gap between the, I think the words you used were trade flows and capital flow challenges between the East and the West, actually Latin America and the Southeast. So how did that lead to coffee? Sure. So basically I started first, I started my commodity journey in fresh cut flowers. I had some contacts still in Asia. We started doing trade. Most people don't know Colombia is the second largest exporter of fresh cut flowers in the world behind the Netherlands. So if you're in the United States and you're buying fresh cut flowers at Costco or Kroger or wherever, there's a very, very, very high probability those flowers are coming from Colombia. Right. Okay. So that trade route is very, very developed. There's a lot of people who can trade flowers with the United States. It's very efficient, but there's very few that can do it in Asia. Right. Mm. There's cultural gaps, there's language gaps. And so we started trading. I built a little sales team. We had Japan specialists, South Korea specialists, and China specialists. So we started trading primarily, obviously, with South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong. We did a little bit with China. We did a little bit with the Philippines and Indonesia that we could do in English. And we had this little boutique trading business. I mean, I would say fresh cut flowers, that's the most aggressive trading business you can because by the time you cut it to the time it's dead, it's two weeks, right? Mm. So you got to get it to the product and have it have some kind of value to somebody within a two week period. So it makes like coffee trading look like easiest cake, right? Fresh cut flowers is aggressive. Let's define the word trading. What does that mean for folks who may not be as similar what trading means? Sure. So you have a lot of fresh cut flower farms here in Colombia. I would say things like roses, the big places is Bogota, outside of Mm -hmm. Bogota. Things like hydrangea, the big place is Medellin, where I'm calling from today. What we would do is we would do site visits and farm visits in both Medellin and Bogota to have a portfolio of products that we can buy from farms local here in Colombia. We would have like a partner logistics company And then we would trade those with offloads in Asia. And so let's say, for example, you say, okay, I can buy a flower, a rose for 25 cents, but if I get it to Japan, I can sell it for 50 cents. And then let's say the logistics cost is 10 cents. So in that example, you'd have a 20 cent spread, right? And that would cover your risk of financial LA. At that time, I was basically funding a trading house with just my own capital to learn how it worked. Really what I wanted to do was learn how it worked. And if there was any arbitrage to be had, I can build a business out of it. What happens is you have certain trades that go south and that's say, I mean, you can insure a trade all you want with South Korea, but if someone decides not to pay you, am I going to sue someone for $10,000 in Seoul? You ain't getting that money. (laughs) You're not getting that money. So you'll have certain bad trades and you say, man, that's not working out that well. So then I started talking. And then as I did that, it's a roadblock to say, I started meeting peers doing things in coffee and in cacao, right? And we started looking at trade corridors in coffee and cacao that were outside of the normal trade corridors, like outside of just, okay, offloaded in the United States, offloaded in Germany or France or Spain, look at stuff that's weird or whether it's Eastern Europe or Mm -hmm. Southeast Asia, look at stuff that most people don't focus on. Maybe they're little tiny niches, but look at that. 
We ended up getting linked up with some real estate investors who were comfortable with commercial real estate in Colombia, and they reached out to me and said they wanted a ag-backed project. They didn't care what the agricultural project was, but they wanted something that basically had a higher rate of return. They could, let's say, a mall or a multifamily business could do here in Colombia. They had to be an ag. And so the original that? thesis I had- Well, I'm sorry. What I find with, and it still holds true to this day, today I have over 450 high net worth investors who invest in the coffee business. Almost every one of them want exposure to agriculture because agriculture typically, even if you just have an asset play of a land holding, typically it'll yield higher on a rate of return than multifamily will do, multifamily mm-hmm. or office, right? And it's very stable asset classes. And like, especially in the United States, as long as you can insure and get derivatives against any weather risk or whatnot, the yield is very, very stable. You see a lot of money flowing into it. And it's very difficult asset class to get into, especially in developed market, because the pension funds have basically bought everything. Sure. <laughs> and that's universal like everything. throughout the world. Absolutely. I mean, you have the institutional capital just soaks up everything and it's very difficult to find yield. What we had is a group of real estate investors that say, I want an ag project. I want it to be somewhat a scale play. Mm -hmm. And that's where we started the Green Coffee Company. Originally, it was just a consolidated acquisition thesis with a consolidated infrastructure and sell as far down the value chain as you can get to get some arbitrage. And my background in private equity, M&A structuring, the the experience I had with already having basically my own commodity trading house. And I was trading coffee at the time before I started Green Coffee Company. We had the experience to build the team and really get this started. So we raised a little under $6 million to get it started. You get in the game and that becomes the building block to say, you really start to understand the markets. You understand how it's fragmented. You understand the weaknesses. And you say, look, if we throw a real amount of capital into this and get some real human capital in here, we can really take this thing to the next level. And we did that in about 2020, hired international management teams. In that time, we brought in about another $20 million. And then we said, look, let's bring it to the next level and see where we get to. I think this could be something interesting. And then in about 2021, 2022, we say, we can go real big with this. This has a lot of legs. This can be a pre-IPO company. We can take this public on a US exchange but we need to do these kind of things. So we, we just finished a series C in May of this year, raised another 25 million. And then now we're really taking it to the next step. We're getting into roasted coffee. We're working with coffee byproducts, like things like coffee cherries can be used to create other products, which for people who don't know, coffee comes in a cherry. And right now, the only thing that's really used globally is a seed. The cherry itself is oftentimes thrown away. It's a pollutant. It's a ridiculous use of value. It has a lot of antioxidants, has long stream fibers, has protein. And what we found is a use case, things like baking flour is a great use case. Things like animal feed is a great use case. But the best one we found and the one our high net worth guys love is we're building a full scale ethanol distillery. So pure mm. neutral alcohols, we can create gins and vodkas. So we're right. doing a facility that we can Everyone produce wants at least to be the five. Next George Clooney. Perfect. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And there is no like vodka or gin national in here in Colombia. And we're going to be able to produce a mountain of it. Basically, we have so much byproduct. It's ridiculous. So, you know, it's about being innovative at origin and doing new stuff. Has it ever happened before? Everything becomes a roadmap. Cole, has anyone No one has ever done it at scale. No. Got it. They have. The studies have been going on for decades. I would say the Coffee Federation here in 
Columbia has done studies in the 70s and 80s. There were some great studies that were done in Germany. Actually, our CEO is half German, half Colombian. And we actually had him go to Germany and meet the people who were doing studies. They were mostly doing studies on Kenyan and Ethiopian varieties of coffee and how it relates Mm -hmm. basically the creation of alcohols for human consumption. And we actually worked with some of those professors to understand what they did, what tests they did. And then we ran our own studies here with the best agriculture universities in Colombia. And we had our own private basically studies done to say, what's the best use case of coffee byproduct? And how do we put this that say, uh, how do we use it on a macro scale? I'm not interested in doing little one-off products that maybe make a lot of profit. I need to do this on millions and millions of pounds of byproducts. And how do you do it throughout Colombia? And those are the studies that we completed earlier this year. That's awesome. So you raised a little over $50 million in the last three years, correct? We're at, as of this morning, we're probably at 65 million of equity. 65 mil raised. 65 mil. That's correct. Raised and deployed. Are you able to tell uh, what's the post money? Sure. So right now, we're probably about $120 million valuation. That's what we were raising at in the last raise. Are you still in the raise or are you done with the raise? Because Series C, you're done. We're done done with the raise. You're done with the raise. That's good. We're done with the raise. We're done with the raise. Got it. What is the next step in the evolution of the Green Coffee Company? Is it expansion at this point? The raise that you have, is it more expansion? Is it more on the spirit industry? Where exactly are you focusing? I would say expansion of product lines is important. Revenue verticals, I think, is super important. I would say roasted coffee is an important hedge for us to get away from the volatility of commodity markets. Mm-hmm. Things like commodity markets, what you'll find is the amount of paper derivatives that are better out there, the amount of trading houses that playing commodities can really mess up your pricing real quick if you trade in anything that's determined by a commodity market. Now we get our coffee rates really high. We have great scoring. We have the best agronomists in Colombia, but we're still correlated to commodity markets. No matter what happens, even though we traded a premium above commodity markets, Mm -hmm. we're always correlated. So if you had a massive drop and that's say you just have a flood of paper derivatives coming on, I can't hedge against that with any hedge. Right to make sure you remain profitable if you go below the cost of production. So one of our key focuses as a company is getting to roasted coffee. We actually had a candidate here yesterday that I was with the farms at the farms all day. We're hiring a new head of roasted sales and we want to do, you know, our goal internally is to do 30 million pounds minimum of roasted coffee sales in the United States within the next two to three years. And so what we want to do is transition green sales into roasted. And that's my natural hedge against commodity risk. And then other things like distillery product, that to me is the company of the future. We say we're a coffee company, which is obviously true. We grow and sell coffee, but the real business of innovation and how you take it to the next level is what do you do with byproducts? This is a waste material that just becomes anything you do with it basically is not only pure profit, but you're also saving the environment from throwing into a river and with oxidation, it will just kill wildlife. Like it's a, it's the terrible use of value to throw it in a field and have it pollute. Like it's ridiculous. And I think that's the real value of the business going forward. So once we close the hedge that I would say that roasted risk and commodity risk, then we really get innovative and have all of our team get creative with byproduct expansion, basically. Awesome. Awesome. Cole, how can our listeners learn more and get involved? Sure. So you could follow us on LinkedIn. We're pretty active there. You look for us, uh, Legacy Group, LinkedIn, only Legacy Group operating and managing Columbia for sure. 
And feel free to always check out our webpage, www.legacy-group.co. And you can see everything we do. Anytime we have a capital raise, we post it there or on LinkedIn. And you can track along and see all our videos that we put out about the portfolio companies. Awesome. No, I, I really believe, I don't think the addiction, but it's really the love for coffee is not going on. Yes. <laughs> I've, I don't I've think been so. Trying, I've been I trying to get rid so. of it for the last 20 years, but I'm only increasing my coffee consumption. I don't that's think my that's life. Going away. Yeah. So that's good, man. That's good. <laughs> Cole, we're coming towards the end of our show here. I do want to ask you two more questions before we end. The first question really is exciting life, exciting journey so far. You're about to turn 40 next month, you said, right? Next month, October. Well, depending on when this show comes up, hopefully it'll be closer to your birthday. But happy birthday in advance for now. If you reflect back to your 20s, What's mm-hmm. one insight? Nothing needs to be changed about that life because you are who you are because of the life you've lived. Right? So I'm a firm believer. Sure. I don't want anything to be changed. But if somebody were in your shoe today, they came to you with one insight only that can make their migration in life more intentional, what would that one insight be? I would say trust your gut and take risks. Be comfortable taking risk. I think a lot of us, especially you're coming out of graduate school, everyone wants to go work for JP Morgan or Google or whatever. And they see that as a logical choice for everyone to do. If you really want to do something special, be comfortable, like trusting your gut. If your gut says to do something, even if your head says it's risky, I'd recommend to do it because you're going to regret it 20 years from now if you do not. Even if it's the wrong thing, it doesn't matter. Do it so you don't regret it. Learn from it. Don't think about the money. Just learn as much as you can. If you're great at something, the money will come. I love your story, man. When you went to your partner there, his name was Chris Chen, you said, right? Yes. Chris Chen. You went to him saying that I'll work for free. I would work for free. And you probably would have. I think you were serious about that. Otherwise, you wouldn't have offered it to him, which is an amazing quality because most of the people are worrying about what kind of car I want to buy, what kind of house I want to buy. Of course. Impress a girl. Whatever the circumstances maybe at that time, but you were thinking that you wanted to do something different, which is amazing. So thank you. So you're not just giving that insight. You actually lived that insight, which is what I love. The last question actually is, what's your one wish and desire for humanity as a whole to migrate towards in the next few decades? I would say the more that you learn and travel and learn about other cultures, you're going to smarten up real quick and your world is going to open. I think If I would have just stayed, honestly, in Raleigh, North Carolina, I would have been much more closed-minded and I would not have understood how the world works. And I think migration, whether you do it permanently or temporarily, is massively important to build EQ. Not IQ, EQ. Mm -hmm. And I think that's equally important to IQ. If you had people that traveled more, interact with people, learn some new languages, you're not going to have everyone so divided, which I think you're seeing in a lot of developed markets right. right now, and they won't segregate themselves so much when they understand the world is a diverse place. But most humans want the same kind of stuff. They're not as divided as you make them out to be. Right. But you need to travel to find that out. Awesome. Well, Cole, thank you again for taking the time and speaking with us and adding tremendous amount of value. We'll make sure all the links that you mentioned will be included in the show notes below. Hope to stay in touch, buddy. Thank you. Thank you, Sakit. My great to other listeners, it is possible that you could defer paying high tax bill by completing a 1031 exchange and invest your real estate capital gains into a qualified replacement property. 
My friend Ray DeWitt at Bangerter Financials is your single point of contact for 1031 exchanges and tax saving strategies. To learn more, call him at 801-312-9482. That's 801-312-9482. Or visit his website at 1031.bangerterfinancial.com forward slash 1031 guy. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.